Welcome to National Disability Services Quality and Safeguards podcast series. This series has been developed to support Victorians to transition to the NDIS Quality and Safeguards Commission, which will take effect in Victoria for NDIS participants on the 1st of July 2019. I'm Dave Ralph, Victorian Quality and Safeguards Manager with National Disability Services, and we're here today to discuss what service providers can be doing to prepare for the new national quality and safeguarding requirements. Victorian service providers are well-placed to meet these new national requirements, but there is still work to be done. Our studio guests, Ella Joyce and Nathan Despot, are going to share with us some of the things that they are doing in their own organisations to prepare. So Nathan, if we could start with you, what type of support does your organisation provide and what size is it, etc.? We're a mid to small to mid-sized organisation. We support uh, approximately 180 people with intellectual disability. Uh, We provide support coordination direct support and a range of associated line items. So Ella, what's the size of your organisation and what type of supports and services do you provide? Well, we are quite a large organisation. As the result of a merger in the last 18 months, we are up and down the eastern seaboard of Australia. We do provide a very broad range of services. We provide support coordination, residential services, short-term accommodation, one-to-one and community-based support, and we also do have some allied health services as well. Great. And what do you think is the benefit of a nationally consistent quality and safeguarding framework for providers and the people they support? The primary benefit of having the unified framework with with one commission governing all of that uh, is the fact that many of the disparate systems and um, approaches that were present in the past have now been well standardised and brought together. I think the most important part of that piece for us, and anyway, from my perspective as a quality manager, is the practice standards and the fact that the practice standards touch very strongly on each of those other parts of the the framework. So the practice standards outline approaches to complaints, to intake of um, people who are accessing the services of an organisation, um, supporting people to equitably engage with the NDIS marketplace and the way that they find your service in the marketplace, the approach to positive behaviour support and, uh, and other areas of, of um, disability support practice. I think that's important because in the past... For example, in Victoria, we have, you know, the human service standards, which were to some extent quite generic and applied to other service organisations. In this case, we now have practice standards under the NDIS that uh, apply very specifically to people with disability and go quite quite deep into areas of practice that in the past weren't articulated in previous standards. And Ella, what about you? What do you think is the benefit of a nationally consistent quality and safeguarding framework for providers and the people that yeah. they support? Oh, if I could bring it down to one word, it's consistency. Mm-hmm. It's about people understanding that no matter where I am, I know what I can expect for me. Mm-hmm. And every single provider across the country now knows what is expected of me. And I think when we have that type of consistency, it allows for providers to uh, lift their game, I suppose. It mm. may it means that people are going to have to be providing a high level of service because there's opportunities for people to make choices about where they go and who they receive their services from. I think it also will allow for providers to learn from each other. I think it's going to be a really good opportunity to look at, well, who's doing that well and how do we raise what we are doing to make sure that it is best practice. So Ella, 
As a national provider who operates over a number of jurisdictions, what has your organisation been doing to prepare for the NDIS quality and safeguarding framework? Obviously, it's already rolled out in New South Wales. So Mm. how have you been integrating those learnings from New South Wales as you prepare for the rollout in Victoria on the 1st of July? Yeah, look, we are in a very uh, lucky position, I suppose, because we have had some very good learnings from the rollout in New South Wales. There are some differences in the way it is going to come to play in Victoria. I know that in particular there are some reporting systems that will remain in place in Victoria versus what is happening in New South Wales. But I suppose it's been around speaking to people. It's been around speaking to people about what does that mean for me. Mm-hmm. One of the key things that I think happens when we have such large changes like this is people get really caught up in not understanding the key question that everybody asks, which is, what does this mean for me? Yeah. And so it's been about making the information relatable, whether that's to a person who's using our services, whether it's to a staff person, families, support networks. It's about bringing it back to what it actually means for that person. Beyond that, there's been a lot of work done around zero tolerance, which, you know, I have to acknowledge the NDS has been key in providing some of the information for us to do that training. And I think it's also around making sure that people understand the shift, Mm -hmm. the proper shift from being a provider-led service to a person-led service. Yeah. Nathan, what has your organisation been doing to prepare for the NDIS quality and safeguarding framework? So the first thing that uh, we did when we saw the practice standards and got our initial understanding of the framework was sort of observe the breadth of the practice standards and understand what they were asking us to do and understanding the difference between previous standards and these new standards. So we've implemented a practice coaching system that integrates the areas of practice that are either mentioned explicitly or we feel are alluded to in the practice standards, such as positive behaviour support uh, and an understanding of restrictive practices person-centred active support, supported decision-making and aspects of community development, autism awareness, aspects of diversity and intersectionality, pre-planning, understanding documentation, and also working with goals. The practice coaching system also includes whole days of training, an online learning system, and direct observation in the community. We also ensured that we have group team meetings where staff are able to, in a de-identified way, sort of case conference some of the things that they experience And there's a strong focus uh, on the practice standards and making sure our staff understand them. We've also noted that there are areas in the practice standards that are explicit around rights. For example, you know, the right to be sexual and the right to sexual expression and those kinds of things. And one of the things we've found in the past is that, uh, you know, risk-averse gatekeepers can have a, a large say in people's lives, whereas these standards very explicitly... I guess, set a a, a boundary around the ability that gatekeepers have to influence people's lives. For example, we strongly support the right of people to be politically aware citizens, to vote, to have an awareness of their sexual and gender identity, uh, including being LGBTIQ, and the supported decision-making pathway that people might need in order to understand more about who they are and their identity. So we feel that those areas are more firmly supported in these practice standards than in the past. And so we've sought to include a strong sort of backbone of of rights in those areas in our organisation. On top of that, there's also been a matter of of implementing and updating our systems. So our 
our client management system, our quality system, making sure that we can effectively tag all of our quality documents with the practice standards, and also making sure that the documents can be easily accessed by all of our staff. And in the past, we sort of had aspects of all of these things operating quite well in the organisation, um, but we've we've now used those practice standards as motivation to to streamline and improve the quality of all those parts of, of how we operate. Wow. So it seems like there's been a lot of work going on in the background in preparation for the 1st of July, which is the time when uh, organisations will need to be meeting those NDIS practice standards. You did mention training and the supports you've been providing your staff around understanding some of the elements that are outlined in the practice standards. And training has been one of the issues that have been raised by other providers as a bit of a challenge, finding the time and the resources and funding to be able to support their staff with all the training that needs to occur. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and any other challenges that you've experienced around this transition to the quality and safeguarding framework. How are you planning to overcome some of these challenges? The issue of resourcing training is, uh, you know, a a very old and ancient (laughs) issue faced by organisations. There is plenty of evidence out there, though, and, you know, surely any uh, organisation that's sort of keyed into to research and the you know journal articles that have been published by Australian universities uh, in this area you know the, the research does show that um, investing in training in practice training in coaching in a strong practice model an integrated practice model that that leads to better outcomes more efficiency it reduces complaints uh, it can go a long way into supporting a, pe- a person's behavior support plan training is something that does require an, an investment but it does pay dividends in the long run uh, it has cost our organization quite a you know a large figure of financial resource but uh, we're very confident um, already you know because of the outcomes that we're seeing from from that training we're seeing documentation improve we're seeing engagement with people's behavior support plans improve we're seeing the interaction between our staff and new service users improve you know there are people we're supporting now uh, through support coordination that we never met before. They've never been part of our organisation. They have not received direct support from us, you know, from support professionals in the community. They're, some of them are just there for support coordination. And so we need to have a new way of engaging with those um, with those new uh, NDIS participants that allows us to really understand them personally and not just see them as a contract to be managed, which is, I think, what probably some organisations might feel pressured to do. Mm. And so you know, training in that area is just so important. And in the NDIS practice standards, we see so much of a focus on NDIS participants being supported to understand their rights within an organisation, to understand how they can make a complaint, to understand their options, to be able to give feedback about the type of supports they want, the type of people they want supporting them, how they want to be supported, to understand their rights and the options available to them when they transition between services. So that's a, a very large focus. So if you really just manage people as as contracts, then you're actually really not in line with the NDIS practice standards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you touched on an important point there. Organisations really do need to start having these conversations with the people who use their services and their families about the changes that are coming, about their rights, about the practice standards, about the NDIS code of conduct, about all of the elements of the quality and safeguarding framework. Have you started to have these conversations with the people you support and their families in preparation for the 1st of July? The journey for people with disability engaging with services in the NDIS has been incredibly challenging. We as an organisation have tried to make that a bit easier for people with disability and for their supporters, advocates and families right from the beginning 
in terms of helping them prepare for their planning meeting through uh, workshops that we held for um, preparation with, you know, the pre-planning documents, gathering evidence. But more than just, you know, support to understand the system, there's also a need to understand the fact that this this model requires people to do a bit of a dance between a strengths-based approach to who they are and a deficits-based approach. Sometimes in planning meetings, you know, you see that people want to represent their capacity and their dreams, but then also show that even though they have those dreams and they do have capacity to, to dream those dreams, that they also need um, support to achieve them. And sometimes people have come away from planning meetings not with the funding that they've wanted um, because there's been a, a perception they feel that there's been too much of a strengths-based approach used, which is what all people and their families want to do is sort of sing the praises of the person's strengths. And then they haven't talked enough about the needs that they have. And so there's been this perception they feel that they've been judged as having more capacity than they do or fewer support needs than they actually really have. So often people come to our organisation having just been through that process and they're confused about what the goals written on their plans mean. They are asking questions about whether they want to have a review of their plan and they're not sure. So we have to be careful how we have that conversation. Mm. So right from the word go, you're dealing with a different ideology and a different approach to funded supports. Mm. So when they come to the organisation, all of that stuff has just happened and now they're walking into this massive marketplace. Uh, but at the same time, some of the things that they could rely on organisations for in the past, they may not be able to rely on now. There's a changed approach to invoicing, to transport, to assessments, to evidence. There's even a different approach to labelling a person according to their diagnosis. Mm. And so there's there's a lot of that ideological work, that sort of, is happening at the moment for families as they as they come in and for people with disability themselves. And I guess for us as an organisation, we have to work out how to navigate that mm. and understand the approach to goals. It's really important that when people, you know, come to our organisation that we follow that the standards, the practice standards that talk about having a really strong support plan. Mm-hmm. The NDIS plan that people receive after their planning meeting is not the support plan that's spoken about in the practice standards. Uh, It's not the plan that's spoken about, for example, in the uh, Disability Act 2006 in Victoria. And sometimes there's even confusion there. So there's a, there's a lot of that work that needs to happen in terms of understanding what's just happened to me (laughs) in this pre-planning and planning process. And now how do we work together to plan for a strong supported life moving forward? Yeah. And there's a real emphasis in the practice standards on the person using services, their family and their advocates to be involved in that support planning process and for them to have a really good understanding of of that process. Do you see the need for more resources uh, to be provided by the NDIA or the NDIS Commission or others to really strengthen that ability to support people to be involved in those processes? It would be very hard to comply with or acquit, whatever the language is, uh, the practice standards and not be versant in an understanding of supported decision-making or circles of support or, or that kind of thing. The standards clearly paint 
a, a picture of people with disability having a strong network of support around them. And if they don't have a strong network of support, then supporting them to build that network of support, to understand their rights, understand more about who they are, to progress along the journey towards their goals, not just the goals in their plan, but the goals also that are in the support plan that we talked about earlier. So even though you could just look at the the code of conduct and you could look at the other aspects of the framework and provide some training and information, fact sheets, guidelines to, to people with disability and their families, you know, about those things. When you get into the meat of the practice standards, there is so much that organisations need to be doing. The standards really do call for an incredibly high level of fluency in positive behaviour support and supported decision-making. They have an approach to citizenship and dignity of risk that hasn't been sort of codified in the past in previous standards. So I'd say that organisations who, particularly those with support coordination, do need to be thinking really carefully about how they're going to apply uh, that kind of uh, capacity building in the way that they engage the people they support. Yeah, I think you're right. It's also great to see that these practice standards are outcomes focused and that's such an important element to be focused on the outcomes for the people who we're providing support for, as opposed to focusing on a tick box approach to ensuring things are in place. And that's what we've been advised that auditors will really be looking for when they come to services also, is what are the outcomes that you're achieving for the people who you're providing support to. I guess just lastly, it'd be good to see if you have any advice for other service providers about practical things that they might be able to be doing to prepare for the changes to come on the 1st of July. Yep. So I think the first thing to do is sit down with higher management and with the board and to run through the practice standards and also go through all the different elements of the, the framework. I think an assessment of the current systems that an organisation has is really important to make sure that they are capable of functioning well and um, delivering everything that the organisation needs in the future environment. A gap analysis against the NDIS practice standards is is really helpful. We've done that engaging an external consultant who we know and trust very, very much. And it's important to note that the practice standards don't come with the same kind of evidence guide that previous standards frameworks had in the past. The evidence guide is sort of written into the practice standards through the outcomes, as you've said, and very much our understanding is that auditors will be looking at those those outcomes and, and the quality, the, the indicators, and we'll be asking questions such as, here is the indicator, show me how you do this. Mm-hmm. There's also a need for online training. I think if you've got staff that are, particularly staff that are you know working one-on-one out in the community, you've already got the, the work orientation module that they'll need to be uh, doing, but there are also some fantastic resources from NDS, the Zero Tolerance Resources and other um, online training modules out there that can be used quite efficiently. I'd recommend a practice coaching system. I think having uh, an observation system as part of practice coaching is really, really important. Uh, And also having some self-advocacy and empowerment training for the people that organisations support. So there's the fabulous voice at the table training in Melbourne uh, and available to people around the country, I understand. And uh, there's also some amazing citizenship campaigns out there at the moment and self-advocacy groups. There's self-advocacy groups to support people understand their political views, their sexuality and other related areas of citizenship. So I think those are some initiatives that organisations can take. 
Thank you. Some great practical things for people to be thinking about there. And we'll ensure that hyperlinks to all of those resources and websites are included in this podcast summary so that people can have a further look at those when thinking about what they can do within their organisations to prepare. And what about from your perspective, Ella? What have been some of the challenges that have come up with the transition to the NDIS Commission in New South Wales? And what challenges do you foresee may come up and we may see in Victoria? Look, I think for us, having New South Wales roll out before Victoria has been has had its benefits but also its challenges because, as I mentioned earlier, the, the way that things are being rolled out in Victoria are a little bit different to what happened in New South Wales. So I guess some of the challenges for us have been around making sure that the information is still consistent on a state-by-state basis as well as bringing in the actual national framework around things. I think the challenge is mostly around systems, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that in Victoria we have, as they already do in New South Wales, we have our incident reporting systems and those sorts of systems all set up to capture the things that we need to. So is there work occurring within your organisation to build consistency across the various jurisdictions with regards to those systems? Yeah, there is. Yeah, there is currently a harmonisation process that's taking place and that is looking at everything that exists within the different states and what is going to work well across the board. As I mentioned earlier, we are 18 months into a merger and so there's still some of the little knots that we're, you know, unravelling, but certainly there is a lot of work being done to ensure that there is the, the national consistency across everything. Anella, what about staff training? How has that been rolled out in your organisation? We know that that has been a challenge for some other organisations, finding the amount of time and funding it is required to support staff to understand the changes that are coming. Have you got any advice to providers around how training can be rolled out within their organisations? Yeah, I think use the time that you already have for things like staff meetings, for supervision. I think we need to work smarter as a sector. Mm -hmm. We need to make sure that we are utilising the time that we already have to inform best practice and to inform any future changes that are coming. I know that there is a lot of work that needs to be done around understanding how best to use that time. And in particular, when we do have things like the worker orientation module coming out under the um, framework, I do acknowledge that there there is going to be some additional hours, but I think some of that really can be used in the time that we already have. So it's about being creative. Correct. Ella, how has your organisation been supporting your staff and the people you support and their families to understand the changes that are coming under the NDIS Quality and Safeguarding Commission? That's a really great question, Dave. Thank you. And look, as I was mentioning earlier, some of that goes back to talking to people in a way that explains what it means for them because it's different for a staff person than it is for a person who's accessing services than it is for a family member. Mm. And so I think part of it is around breaking down some of the complex language and making it relatable to people. Mm -hmm. It's really important to acknowledge that for a majority of families out there and staff and people that we support, the NDIS has been such a huge amount of work and such a huge shift in language and not necessarily the services that we provide, but around the context of services. Yes. And so I think that having information that is relatable to each person is is absolutely critical. 
It's also really little things like making sure you have information available for people around the way that they might be able to make complaints in the future. It's really important to have that simple information ready to go so that people know the different avenues that they can contact for, for matters when they have concerns. So Ella, what advice would you provide to other service providers here in Victoria about the practical things that they can be doing now to prepare for the rollout of the NDIS Quality and Safeguarding Framework here in Victoria? Yeah, look, there's some really clear and tangible things that providers need to do to make sure that they're ready. Mm -hmm. One is around the code of conduct. Make sure that your code of conduct, the things that you are asking your staff to adhere to, are aligned with the code of conduct that sits under the Quality and Safeguarding Framework. Make sure that your staff are aware of the practice standards. And again, what does that mean for me? What does that look like when I'm at work? Mm -hmm. And how do I show that I'm doing the things that I say I'm doing? The other thing's the worker screening. I know that as a sector, we have had fairly standard worker screening processes and practices. And while I understand that largely they are continuing, there are some changes that providers need to be very cognizant of. And all of the information is so readily available. Get yourselves informed, understand what it means for you as an organisation. One of the things that I think is really important, and again, the NDS has so many resources that are available, is get your staff to look at the videos that are available, read the information that's available. And yes, I understand that we have the restraints around timing, but I think they're conversations that people can have while they're at work and supporting people because mm. it matters to everybody. It's not just about what it means to a staff person. It's also about what it means to the people that they're supporting. And I think that's a really nice way to integrate the expectations with the practice because then the people that you're supporting as well will have an understanding of how you're supposed to be supporting them. And on that point, I encourage anyone who's listening to this podcast who'd like some more information around worker screening and the transitional arrangements for Victorian service providers, please listen to our podcast entitled Transitional Arrangements for Victorian Service Providers. Well, thanks so much, Ella and Nathan, for sharing your perspectives and insights here with us today. It's been fantastic to hear what other service providers are doing as they prepare for the changes coming under the NDIS Quality and Safeguarding Framework. And we hope that you find this useful when you're preparing in your own organisations. No worries. Thanks. Yeah, look, thanks so much, Dave. It was great to be a part of the conversation today. For more information, have a look at the Quality and Safeguards page on our National Disability Services website. Keep your eye on the NDIS Commission's website for up-to-date information about quality and safeguarding arrangements and a range of resources to support providers and NDIS participants. Further information about Victoria's quality and safeguards arrangements during transition can be found on the Victorian Government's NDIS website. We've provided hyperlinks to these websites in the podcast summary, along with some useful resources. This podcast has been funded by the Victorian Government.